Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, welcome back to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Zara Hadjiaga Monsini about her paper, Supervision Behaviors of Board-Certified Behavior Analysts with Trainees. Zara received her doctorate in special education at the University of South Carolina. She recently completed a term as the president for South Carolina ABA from 2017 to 2020 and continues to serve on South Carolina's ABA licensure committee. Since 2008, she has owned ABX Solutions in Charleston, South Carolina, and delivers services to individuals with disabilities. In addition, Zara owns Green Space Behavior, which delivers a diverse range of behavior analytic services to support fieldwork supervisors and trainees, as well as assist small businesses and using organizational behavior management to improve business outcomes. Through green space behavior, she also facilitates collaborative groups to work with colleagues and stakeholders across the country to tackle larger systems issues such as risk mitigation during COVID-19. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Zara. I think you're going to be very interested in what she has to talk about and the research she did looking at supervision practices. So without further ado, here is my interview with Zara Hajiaga Monsini. Hello, Zara, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, Cody. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. I'm honored that you all asked me to um, join you all. Thank you. Absolutely. We're thrilled about your paper and to hear about it. Before we jump into the paper, we always like getting a little bit of background on our on our guests. Would you mind telling us about what your current roles are and, and sort of a little bit of information about yourself? Yes, yeah. So right now I work in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I've been in South Carolina for, uh, I guess, almost, um, oh, wow. Um, ooh, 18 years. I'm dating myself here. Okay. So I've been here for a while and I um, have a company that I started in 2007 called ABX Solutions. And that is for services for individuals with disabilities. Um, I, I, I love, um, we, we, we go from early intervention into adulthood. So doing those direct services, I've started another company um, which, uh, which I think once we get into the article, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about sort of vision I have, but it's called Green Space Behavior in 2021 to kind of work on um, dissemination of, of the science. So that's another uh, endeavor I have. Um, but more practically speaking, I've um, 
also worked in school systems and our public school systems doing uh, work as a behavior analyst working on building up teacher training and the use of behavior analytic skills. I did that for about five years and that's a that was um, very humbling experience working in public schools. <laughs> and then um, I've, you know, uh, let's see, I've worked, I think you and I were talking offline a minute ago, but I, I've worked um, for our South Carolina Association for Behavior Analysis. I've done service time, worked on the executive board as president since 2000, fall 2017, just rotated off that leadership track. And then now I'm still working on the licensure, our active licensure committee. And um, uh, that's sort of more of my practical experience, but my actual training and my PhD was from the University of South Carolina. And I have PhD in special education, and I graduated in 2019 under the excellent mentorship of Dr. Eric Drazka, who, um, cool little note for trivia, anyone ever wants to know about him, he is a BF Skinner birthday twin on March 20th. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, I was excited. I got to work on the um, World Behavior Analysis launch. I was on that task force with that group, and uh, that was that was so cool when we were working out. Like, obviously, it was like, we got to pick March 20th, but that was, that's a cool little fun fact about Dr. Jasko. I like to um, pick on him about that, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. I'm in South Carolina, and um, really excited about um, over the course of my, I guess, if you'll say, uh, professional experiences have just been so humbled. Um, I, I have a love affair with our science, Cody. Like, I, I remember, like, it's like, it's like the, the, um, and when I was 20, I was actually in Long Island. I rem and ironically, I went to the Cody Center um, at Stony Brook <laughs> University. Yeah. And I remember um, being so humbled when I was like positive reinforcement, like this, you know, when I was 20 years old. And, and then I, I was like, this is what I, I will do for the rest of my life. It was like a light bulb moment. And then after the Cody Center, I, I, I like I fell in love with the the idea of of, of our science, and I like I, I have a, a love affair, a lifelong love affair with our science. And when once I left, sort of that in, initial like five to six years, where I realized how cool it was to do the individual consumer interventions, right, where you see like the the change. And then I realized in running a business, and then over the course of the work I've done through my state association, um, over the last you know, ten years, I'm like this stuff is happening all the time. It's like grab. I always say, like, once you realize what behavior analysis is and the power of, of our science, it's, and I think new students, it takes them a while to understand, right? It's in every interaction. It's with mm -hmm. myself. It's with people in my house, people I work with. It's always around you and the opportunity to enhance our lives are always available in our science. And that excites me. Like that idea as like this concept is the most exciting thing in my day. I get up excited <laughs> about what awesome thing can I do today to make someone else's life better, right? Whether it's a consumer or someone at a grocery store, like an interaction, it's just so exciting when you see our science and it's like happening all around us. And so um, last year, um, and I heard you guys talking about this in um, the special editions from 2020, but it was really clear to me um, where we had all these, a call, like a call to action for several different issues. Um, and it's really just inspired me um, and, and also kind of inspired the, the article we'll talk about in just a moment, but just looking at, we need to get us, meaning behavior analysts, into every system, right? We need, right. A, we need, we need, we need us like in large systems, small systems, and all sorts of societal issues. I think about the work, the seminal work that Skinner has done. I think about Murray Sedman, Coherion mm -hmm. and its fallout. Um, we need, like, we, that stuff's been around for decades. 
And so like, let's like start making change now. Like let's get people out. Um, and we have a lot of people gravitating towards autism services because that's where the funding, that's where the reinforcement is heavy, the heavy. But I am very optimistic, Cody, that we can get, we can sneak behavior analysts into systems through creative ways, through grants and, and different job titles. We can get us in there and we can do good stuff and optimize environments everywhere and design cool interventions. Um, so I'm just very excited about our field. Like I really love what we do and I see so much possibility for um, now is time. Like I think now is our calling, right? For our science. I think now is our time. Like let's let's do good stuff for the for everybody. So I'm really excited. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I share your optimism 100%. I think we have such an amazing, strong, useful science that can go really into every little corner, I think, and can have major contributions. And whether that be in things like sustainability or anything else, you know, one of my favorite books is The Nurture Effect by Tony Biglin, where he really talks about mm -hmm. applying the science of behavior to large scale societal issues and, and how important so many of those pieces are and, and that ultimately behavior analysts can contribute to some of those areas. Absolutely. And I'll have to actually make a note to grab that resource. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I love he's that. A, he's got another one on capitalism. I'm not going to remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I, I think it's sort of a behavior analytic view of capitalism, which I think is, is, is been rated out or been recommended a few different times by people. So Tony Biglin is a, is a great resource. Thank you. Right. You're giving me resources right now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And we'll link to those in the show notes. Now for your PhD in, in South Carolina, was this research that we're going to be talking about today focused on the, the survey of, of supervisor behaviors? Is that part of your dissertation or your research there at all? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that because I um, not, you know, like the listeners, um, I think this is such an important thing that I'll share is I, my life. And I think we, we talked about this just a moment ago. You, we have hindsight right after we go through an experience where you're like, it's, and then you realize life is just a journey. Right. And, and so it really is like every day is like, what's, what's on the docket today for today's uh, <laughs> challenges or op opportunities. Um, so yeah. So to answer your question, yes, it was a dissertation journey. Um, and it was a 10 year journey, Cody, it was 10 years. So anyone who's wow. listening, who's in a master's program thinking, Hey, like I want to, I'm not sure I'm interested. Um, I want to just say this moment, like, I, there was moments where I gave up. That was four years ABD. Um, mm -hmm. There were some heavy moments on that journey for me just because of life, right? Like just some personal things that happen. But I want to encourage anyone who's listening, uh, if this is your passion, move forward. Like it's okay mm -hmm. to take a break and come back. And so this is the result of 10 years of, of love and passion. Like I said, I have, I have a love affair with behavior analysis. So I knew I was going to come back, you know, but I knew I needed to give myself a break for a moment. And, and I want to just put that out there and offer that um, in a moment of true humility, because I, I recognize um, people feel alone probably on that journey. If you're a student where like, if you're doing a thesis or you're in research where you're like, I, I'm not going to get through this. Right. And you probably know that too, Cody, um, where you're like, I, there's no way, like, I'm just going to give up. Right. Because right. your contact with reinforcement is so low, right. It's not daily. It's not frequent. And it's long delays and reinforcement um, with competing contingencies in life. And I just want to encourage, if this is your passion, 
move forward and you can do this and you're not alone. Everyone feels feels that. So this this work that we'll talk about is is really the culmination of um, that passion, right? Because it was a lot easier at certain points just to walk away. But I'm but but I'm so excited to be here and have this opportunity with you all and and to talk about it as an opportunity, an example to um, you have a dream, like as as cliche as that sounds, go after it, like believe that actually that dream is a possibility. Um, and I, there was moments where I didn't think this dissertation would ever be realized. And I certainly, um, for anyone who has a dissertation, and Cody, if you're willing to share, um, is your dissertation published? It is, yeah. Okay, very good. So getting even a dissertation published, because there's that post-reinforcement pause, right, where you're just like, I'm done, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go party now and live my life. Yeah. Um, but it's so important to try to publish your work if you can, because, um, and this is the result of what I've done, and that's a lot of additional work, is getting it published. Um, my dissertation originally, as I told you earlier, is 180 pages, and and chopping, chopping it down to even though it's relatively long for a publication in a journal to 20 pages, um, is a lot of work. I do not envy anyone who is in the editing business. Like think about film editing or uh, book editing. It's a lot of work to figure out what to cut and what to leave. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's definitely sort of, this is the byproduct and our conversation today is is the result of, of like a, a 10 year journey um, and passion for, contribute contributing to our science and, and our field so this is this is definitely the result this research is the result of the work I did in the University of South Carolina love it and I love the message yeah. about persist you know so many of my students as, as a as a professor and a graduate program director so many of my students feel obligated to either follow the exact traditional route or not do it at all and it's like guys it, it doesn't matter which road you take as long as you get to the to the destination, right? So for some people that might be taking one class a, a semester, you know, or for, for others, yeah, maybe they can take the sort of traditional load and, and go through more sort of in the, in the typical sequence, but it doesn't matter ultimately what your path was to get to a place. As long as you can, you meet that destination and that goal, that's what matters, you know, nobody knows how long it took me to get my PhD. It just matters that I'm, I have my PhD now and, and I'm a professor, right? It, right. How we got there is, is in, in many cases or in, uh, in some ways irrelevant to, as long as you, you meet your, your goal. So love that message. And I love that this is your dissertation and, and I definitely uh, feel for you knowing that you had to cut it down. It, it is so difficult. I think part of the dissertation process is caring about every single little detail and i can tell you're a passionate person and probably wanting everyone to know about every detail of it that's certainly what my experience was but to be able to sort of simplify it cut it down and to be able to to share it in this form both in the the publication and in this podcast i think it, it ends up being a really tremendous resource so do you want to introduce us to the the topic and sort of begin to explain a little bit about what you did yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, basically, after I took a four-year <laughs> four um, hiatus as ABD, I had already done um, a one point, we'll call it dissertation 1.0, Cody. And that was, so I, I've always had um, to wrap back around and make it cohesive, sort of like the passion for this particular research. What, what I realized 
when you start a business and you don't, and this is like the, when you finally recognize the science is always happening and you have that light bulb, like when Mm -hmm. you're a student, you're like, Ooh, the concept is so cool. And then you don't really recognize the generalization of reinforcement at the stop sign at the gas station. So I I recognized quickly once I was over like the initial acquisition of it and then running a business, which is you have to quickly learn. Um, I didn't realize I was doing OBM, Mm -hmm. right. I didn't, I, at that point, I didn't have that vocabulary to correctly label what I was doing already because I realized, oh my goodness gracious, I've got to start applying some kind of systematic process to how I run a business if I'm actually going to run a business because I have a degree in, in education and psychology. I don't have a degree in human resources or business management. Um, I say this now and I laugh, but I was like, what, I don't know how to get consent for treatment. What is HIPAA? What is PHI? Like, these are like little things that we talk about conceptually, but no one actually models that behavior unless you go get coursework in that. So I recognize in dealing with um, employees, staff, as my business grew, um, I realized like this idea of like training someone else to do something other than myself, other than me being the direct interventionist. I recognize recognize that really early on. So I started doing a lot of research initially for my 1.0 attempt in performance feedback systems. Mm. Um, And that's ultimately some work I was able to do in school systems. So I had this fascination. Um, And in the interim, while I was in timeout, the RBT credential came out because I had sort of this vision of trying to validate like a, a, a very efficient BS protocol that could be done with an asynchronous synchronous model that would allow for um, efficient cost-effective solutions for training like stakeholders that were non-certified and then ultimately we end up with the RBT credential so I had to go back and take that initial like passion I had for training other adults because going back to that vision of how do we get the science out well we need people to fall in love with our science right Mm. to be like this methodology rocks and I can do (laughs) yeah right like I can do good stuff with this Um, I may not have the exact, you know, research training. I I don't maybe have time to go to a doc program, but um, the science rocks and I can do this on a small level every day. So getting that out, like that idea fundamentally drove me to kind of explore 2.0, which was, okay, what can I do now? Like in 2018, um, and this is a shout out to Linda LeBlanc and Tyra Sellers, who I absolutely um, have. I'm like their number one fan. If they listen to this, I, <laughs> ladies, I am your number one fan. Um, they're both very nice human beings. They're amazing human beings. Um, I got to see them uh, at ABAI Paris at the International. I was there. Tyra Sellers and Linda LeBlanc were presenting and they, Tyra was talking. She had a slide up and it was like these zombie stick figures. Yeah. And she, yeah were you there? Yeah, I wasn't at that one. I've seen oh. that talk. It was yeah. it's an amazing talk. That yes. She does. Okay. So, I, and I've actually had an opportunity to talk with her offline um, about that talk, but like, we don't realize like the positive, like ripple effects that can be good or bad just in general. She had a positive ripple effect. She made such a powerful statement with that, that talk and that visual. She said, ask yourself and your supervision practices for your fieldwork trainees, are you doing are you creating a better future, right? Better, better behavior analyst. And I left that, that was such a pivotal moment. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. Cause I was in this sort of like, what do I do next? What will contribute to our field? And then I asked myself, Cody, I was like, well, how do I know what to do? Right. Mm. Um, and it led down this deep dive of having conversations who've been very, with people like, um, and I heard Amber talk about this, Amber Valentino talk about our field is so nice everyone is really nice. Like, like people return emails, people will talk to you. Jim Carr is really nice. The CEO of the BACB, like, um, like you, you, you'd be surprised. I think like undergraduates or graduate students don't realize how accessible 
our field is. Like most people want to talk about the science, like we're excited about it and we're very nice about it too. Like even in the peer review process, everyone's just really pretty cool. And so um, I've had a lot of cool people who are willing to talk to me about this idea of fieldwork supervision that ultimately led, led me to this place of what I needed to look at and realize was like the thing that drives our behavior is our, our professional ethical compliance code, which will be changing um, to the ethics code for behavior analysts. That'll, that'll be a change forthcoming in January of 2022. But it drove me to this place about what drives our behavior as a supervisor, because at that point I didn't know um, that I didn't know what that meant, right? When Tyra said that, that I was inspired. I said, yes, Tyra, I want to be better. I want to hashtag do better, um, right? I want to do better, but I didn't know exactly why I didn't know. Like I struggled to identify that. And then I realized, and this is probably good information um, for anyone who listens, there's a direct correlation between the task list, right? The, the minimum knowledge, skills, and abilities, how you're trained and what your competencies are once you come out of your training. So the coursework and fieldwork together um, then, you know, provide you with the opportunity to go test and enter the field. And so when I was doing my literature review and trying to conceptualize this idea, I recognized, oh, well, does Eric? It's because you didn't actually get this on your on your third edition task list. Mm-hmm. You weren't trained to be a supervisor. And if you look at the evolution of our field, Cody, you can see like the growth rates that shot up um, depending on where you entered before the funding at a national level of, cer- of, of insurance reform for um, certain um, populations that provided the coverage for ABA. You can actually see like that wasn't initially a minimum competency, right? Because when we set up those minimum KSAs, knowledge, skills, and abilities, um, that is governed by a highly regulated industry um, that governs all professions. It's called, I think, the National um, Commission for Certifying Agencies, NCCA, I think. Um, and our, our profession, like all others, has to go through a very rigorous process to have our, our, um, our credential qualified and meets these rigorous conditions. And so that's why when they send out this job survey, a task analysis every five to seven years, you have to provide that feedback so that they know what our practitioners doing in the field right now. And what has happened and what I found in my literature review over time, you could see that it was now becoming a minimum KSA to be able to supervise minimally an RBT, a registered Mm -hmm. behavior technician. So the evolution of being a supervisor wasn't an initial baseline skill set and most people's um, task list. And you can look at the fifth edition that task list coming out and you can see they have a lot more substance for just personnel management. And it's because the evolution of our field now requires that as a minimum KSA. So that sort of set me up for this diving into this huge literature review, Cody, where I like I had a moment where this was so disconnected, right? Where I was like in crisis, like an existential supervisor, <laughs> fieldwork supervisor crisis, where I took Tyra's comment and I was like, why don't, why don't I know how to be a good supervisor, right? And that led me down a huge, like, six months of literature review where I was putting all these pieces together. And then it was, like, obvious. It was like, oh, duh, right? It was like, this is why. Um, it's an evolving skill set. And right. it, it wasn't needed, but now it is. And so it's progress of our field, right, um, which is exciting, it's so exciting. So that kind of led me into the development of, of these questions of where I said, okay, so I don't know, and it's perhaps helpful in looking at the literature review, we don't, we have a dearth of literature on fieldwork supervision. 
we had a great edition in BAP 2016, a special edition that really talked about this. Linda LeBlanc actually did it, and Lucielli did a great intro article on, on, on like a call to call for research in this area. And so all these pieces sort of came together and I said, this is what I'll do. I'll focus on the professional ethical compliance code because once you are certified, that is what holds you accountable, like your practice behavior. Once you leave the world of task lists, right? That is actually what's enforceable for your, mm -hmm. your behaviors as a practitioner and representative of our field. So let's go there and pinpoint, how would I measure if Zara or Cody is a professional and ethically responsible fieldwork supervisor? Because if, if someone puts in an alleged complaint against me, right? Um, that's what's that's the rubric, right? right that's what right. we're going to use. But what are those pinpoint behaviors? Like we're we're a science of highly specific behaviors. So we have codes as themes, like these categorical themes. But what what is the substance of those themes? And that was very fascinating to me because I said that is the rubric we need yeah. in order to say yes or no because that removes a lot of subjectivity. And just makes it like step on the scale. So that kind of led me into this big idea, like let's weigh ourselves, let's develop a measurement system and, and step on the scale and, and see, see what we weigh or see how tall we are or see where we are. Let's get a percentage, let's get some data, right? Um, and that kind of led me into the development of, of these, these questions on this journey because I wanted to know, um, I wanted to know first and foremost, it's kind of selfish, but I knew it was for the benefit of the field. I wanted to know even about my own performance, mm. right? So there was that because I love fieldwork supervision because I'm, like I said, I'm passionate about let's train people and let's get them into, let's sneak them into all systems. Um, but I was like, let me make sure I'm doing it the right way so that I'm leaving with someone who's a behavior analyst and not just a population specific trained person. Um, whether it's gerontology or uh, wh whatever the, you know, autism or whatever the subspecialty may be. Um, and, and I don't know if I got too far ahead of myself in describing the, the, the research and association with, with um, USC, but. Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's, you saw a, an area of need. Yeah. Looking at a few different things, but boiling into, are we even just following the bare minimum ethical requirements as outlined in our ethics code? Yeah, yeah, that became sort of like, like, if we're going to align at something, let's align it to our ethics, our practice ethics, let's, let's speak because and then that that's easy because and you, you have to look at like, sometimes people will engage in behaviors like you have to look at the contingencies for a supervisor. And, and I hate I hate to say this because it sounds cohesive and I and I'm, I'm currently working on um, well I talked about cohesion and its fallout and, and you just hate the concept of even subtle cohesion right like mm. I just oh it just makes me like cringe because I want people to be like free operant like just come to me because you want to do this right like because mm. it's the right thing to do right but here's the reality um, we know there's going to be a small percentage of people and it happens in any profession that are just not going to be awesome, right? They're just not going to be awesome. And this is a universal thing in any profession. There's going to be less optimal doctors, nurses, social workers in any field, right? Um, so if you place ethics, right, it's like this negative reinforcement thing, right? Like I'll behave ethically because there's an enforceable code, right? Right. So like, and, and that was sort of like, um, I was thinking about that, like thinking about large systems, right? About the message, the why you should care. All right, so hypothetically, we should compare, com care about consumer protection, right? 
that's it. Like, that's what this is about. Regulation of an industry is standardizing these things so that everyone gets a similar level of service and care for what's being described or advertised. Um, However, if that's not as appealing to you as an option, how about care about your ability to work, right? Like, like the ethics, let's, let's have some backup contingencies that you may find more inviting to engage in these behaviors that are optimal for fieldwork trainees. Um, So yeah, so I was actually thinking about that, like from a systems design, right? Like what are the different contingencies that may um, impact choice making, right? Like in in the absence of immediate delivery of consequences, because the BACB, Jim Carr and Tyrus Ellers and Melissa Nozak, they're not all hanging out in your fieldwork training office with you to (laughs) give you feedback, right? They're not going to give you immediate feedback, but what what are some things like some rules, right? That could be um, helpful for you to be aware of as you make decisions about how you interact with your fieldwork trainees. So that was really very much the driving force and looking at that code. And also this is a quick nugget, which did didn't make it into the actual publication um, on behavioral observations podcast, which um, Matt Sicoria runs. I don't know if you're familiar with that. In, two, in April of 2018, as I was doing my literature review, Dr. Carr came out and he discussed a white paper that is available on the BACP. It was put out, yeah, in 2016. And Cody's shaking his head for listeners. He's like, yes, I, I remember that. And um, he talks about the number one area of alleged violations was super related to supervisory delegation um, within our, our PECC. And that was like, also for me, it was like all these things like kind of fell together, right? Like all these things, like it said, hey, like, wait, like all these things made sense to me and I had a natural passion for it. So anyone who's interested to look at that, um, that is available as, as a document on the BACB's website as a white paper. And that was very impactful for me when he mentioned that on the podcast, I was like, we've, yeah, we need to like, we need to start doing, doing better. And it's a natural shaping of our field, right? It's like, if you look at medicine um, or any other profession, we're still kind of in our childhood, right? Like mm-hmm. we're getting to, and so I think the thing that's humbling, especially for newcomers who like, they may not understand the context of the development of a profession, right? Where it's like, everyone's like chomping at the, the bits to like have the critical feedback about our field. Like we need, BACB needs to do better. We need to do better. Well, actually we're doing fine. We're right on course with just every, like everyone else has had to go through these growing pains, um, like every other profession. And that was also humbling for me in that moment when I did that literature review. Um, Dr. Carr gave me, he was so kind, he gave me a really good resource, which I'll, um, uh, I'll give you a citation for, um, just for your listeners, for your show notes. But basically, he talked about... Um, Uh, It's like the professional credentialing of of our field. I think it was an article he wrote with Johnston himself and Faye Mellicamp in 2018. It was in BAP. Um, And I'll, yeah, the history of professional credentialing of applied behavior analysis. It was 2017. And that was really good to read because it gives you that context for just remember everyone, we're shaping. We're relatively like, everything is shape, 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 shape. We're shaping to a steady state. Um, And that is, that's so true with fieldwork supervision. So people are like frustrated and we're filing alleged violations on people. Well, remember, like you're only going to do behaviors that you've been taught that are in your learning repertoire. So I try to take the perspective of like that 
actually that person isn't starting out their day saying I'm going to break rules, right? Like I'm going to be a bad person today. They're just actually engaging in behaviors that have been reinforced, that they've watched through observational learning, that they've been taught. And so like if you take that mindset in any inter interaction you have in your life, Cody, like if you actually shift and say this person isn't out to get me or this person isn't out to have a bad performance, it really is helpful to say, well, what is their learning history? Hmm. Right, what behaviors have been put, placed on extinction or punished versus what's been reinforced? And if we look at that, we can really look at fieldwork supervision behavior and say that person is doing as best as they can based on what they have been taught. Right. right. Um, and our board has done a great job in getting out resources such as the special edition, such as like, you know, the changes in relation to, um, I call them in independent uh, variables. Like the interventions from the BACB have been upping the requirements from ethics CEs to the eight hour course. Um, you know, they've got some things about in 2022, you can't supervise post one year certification. So we, I call these IVs because the dependent variable is, let's say, the alleged violations that keep coming in, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at how do we change that? What's the right IV to change and bring that number down? And that's fascinating to me. I know that's a little bit um, off ramp from getting into the research. But um, what I will say is that led me into these four research questions where I wanted to catalog through like an extensive literature review, um, main target behaviors, pinpoints uh, that I could say this aligns with this part of the code. And so I, I pinpointed 46 behaviors that went across the, the ethics code and, and including a miscellaneous category, which um, readers can find the methodology and kind of reference that the sorting process because there is uh, statistics which we will um, not get too deep into because of just um, that information is available in the in the write-up. But um, that led me into asking just how are people reporting that they, they perceive through self-report, how often they engage in these behaviors. So I had like a Likert scale developed um, because I knew I was going to be talking to behavior analysts. I knew it needed to be a Likert scale that had some objectivity to you, like frequency <laughs> of occurrence versus how do you feel. Right. Here's my favorite thing, Cody, and I would love for you to comment on this. Almost and never or always never are easy to rate if that's zero anchor and five. Because right. Right, that's just like black and white. It's everything in between, sometimes, almost always, <sighs> usually. What does that actually mean? Right, right. I don't know. And if you know, I would love for you to tell me. I, I do not know. Yeah, they're, they are... <laughs> vague to say the least yes but they're on all of our standardized tests like Vinelands I mean I can talk about talk about that as another episode if you want <laughs> but but for purposes of my work I knew I had to speak to a behavior analytic audience and I needed to anchor them to okay take the last 30 days did you engage in these behaviors and I provided a percentage of opportunities right like so that there was some numerical anchor to guide their self-reporting behavior and I thought that was a very important aspect of the design um, in capturing the, this baseline so that it wasn't oh I feel like I almost always do it right like there needs to be some sort of numerical objective anchor to help interpret the results so that we can see how much do we actually weigh on the scale and how good or bad is it, right? Like that these terms, good or bad, um, really don't have value until you put some other criterion on them, right? Like, um, so that kind of led me into then going into like this scaffolding order, if you were, where I looked at, okay, once I know what people are doing across these individual behaviors, I just wanted to look at moving averages, like what people are generally saying. And then I kind of looked at the, um, and I think 
Amber Valentino talked about this, like as a practitioner, I wanted to be very realistic about future lines of research where, because I'm very interested in this and, and, and continuing to do work on this right now behind the scenes to um, for this, this particular niche, but I wanted to look at the supervision themes, right? The code themes. Mm. And I clustered all of them together and, and said, which one is on fire the most or which mm. one's doing best and which one's doing worst, right? So that we can focus our attention because not a lot of people have time to do hours of research in a week, right? We just don't. Like if you're a practitioner, like Amber, I think said she had five hours um, like to do. Um, and I may have two hours or 10 hours a month. So like, it's like, okay, if people who are interested in this really want to know what would help the field next. I wanted to look at supervision theme areas to say, once we've explored the individual behaviors, which are most interesting to behavior analysts, like we want to look at what behavior can actually change versus the code theme. I then wanted to look at what codes needed the most help immediately for future investigation. So then I analyzed using some statistical analysis, the ANOVA, just, and that's like a term you're like, I, people will like, yeah, I kind of know what that means. <laughs> Like, and if you give me a multiple choice for a definition, I'll pick it out out of a word bank of four, right? But if I just have to, to give it to you without like some prompts, um, and all it really means is it's, it's looking at averages. It's, it's just really looking at variance, right? Like how much variability is across the averages of these things. Like, so it's just, it's, it's quite simple, the math, but it seems overwhelming until you practice it like any other skill. But it's basically how different, how significantly different is something from something else. That's right. the easiest way I can explain it. Um, and most people will have heard the term or read some literature. And I think it is really good at being able to actually read statistics um, because there is beauty in using other methodology, right? To investigate problems um, that, and I keep going to the, your your interview with Amber because she did focus on re the research gap. So I think it's like really bridges this conversation beautifully is that there is beauty and using other methodology other than single subject when you're looking at big problems and you're right. not sure where to start like you don't even know where to start like it's like a huge systems issue um so statistics and, and other methodologies may be helpful when you're looking at like a homogenous population which fieldwork supervisors hypothetically are a similar cohort of of um individuals um and then it led me into something where I always remember this quote from uh, the BAP 2016 intro article, Linda leblanc She They wrote at the very end paragraph that they had a call for people to research work exigencies, like other aspects of variables that may impact a, a, a supervisor's behavior, right? That mm. we just didn't know because we don't have any information. So I knew that I needed, if I was going to take time to design this, I wanted to capture that. Like, might as well add, ask a few extra questions from people people to, to, to get a profile on their works, work exigencies to see like, what are, what are your other competing factors in, besides you doing supervis, supervision for a trainee? Um, and then my last question was looking at um, this, and this I thought was kind of cool was because the outcome of fieldwork supervision is that you have a, a, a trainee who's gonna pass the exam, right? Like that's like a point of entry. That's an objective way to say um, some minimal objective way that may not be a qualitative indicator of how awesome they are with like, you know, beyond that initial um, target, but pass rates, right? Like are you, so I looked at 
taking apart those 46 behaviors and looking at correlation. And that's another um, in the realm of statistics. It's called a Spearman correlation. And I was, um, and I'll say this again with complete humility, and you are allowed to do this in methodology. You can actually consult with experts if you're going outside of your um, comfort zone with methodology. So if single subject is your wheelhouse. I had to consult with two or three people, Cody. Um, I had to pay people to help me. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was very um, overwhelming. Like my brain grew yeah. like like three sizes in a year where I was like, I couldn't even label these terms. So that is absolutely ethical. And, and I would encourage people to explore methodology. Um, very standard, very standard to consult with statisticians on, on that type of research. If yeah. you look at a lot of grants looking at big in uh, sort of research questions, almost always you're going to see a statistician on there. Absolutely. And, and it's completely, it's okay. Like, I just want to encourage people, like, it's okay to talk to other people about methodology that you're not sure about, but you're reading like that may be the way. Go talk to someone. And I had to pay someone to help me, which that's also normal too. You may have to pay for that service, um, depending on where you are. But I de definitely had to get a lot of help to answer this question. Like it wasn't something within my wheelhouse under single subject. Um, but I looked at the correlation and what that just means is it, it's just as it sounds, it's very simple. Like, um, like the Spearman correlation, the stronger you are to um, a, a certain number, basically we're looking at, then you're able to say with more confidence that these two may be associated. Like when you do this, this may be like, so like, for example, here's an easy one. If this is my own personal goal, like if I'm trying to lose weight, well, the less calories I eat, right? My scale goes down. So there's a correlation between mm. caloric intake. So it's like how two variables may interact with each other. So I was able to look at, because I know that that may be of interest to not only a a supervisor, but a trainee, right? These are target behaviors that may help my um, outcome of my pass rate. So those sort of things, there was a lot of questions, like there was four questions. And I think that that's probably in most cases, more than what most people will dive into for, for a doc or dissertation. Um, and I would advise anyone who's listening, who's doing thesis or doc work, I would only do two if you can. Um, <laughs> Cody, it was only passion that got me through all four questions. There was moments when I was doing all these, like all these write-ups for these ANOVAs where I was, it was like in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning where I'm writing one paragraph for the other. And I just could not, I kept having going back to why are you doing this? Like, <laughs> And I and it kept going back to because you love the science, you love the science. Keep doing these pairs, keep doing it. So it was it was a labor of love to do this, and I am you know it it was a journey, and I'm so excited about the end product and the contribution. I really am really proud of the work, and I'm thankful for the opportunity that it was you know published and put out for other people to consume and potentially extend. Um, so it's it's very exciting to me to to discuss, but. Um, th there's a lot of good information that did get into the final edit about the specifics that I think are m most relevant to people in practice. Um, and there's a lot of good specific tables that show all of the individual questions. Your four primary questions, as we were talking about, sort of boil down to how often are supervisors reporting the use of recommended supervision behaviors with, with trainees? Are there significant differences between the means of participant responses for subsections of the BACB code 5.0 and the miscellaneous categories? Are there significant differences between the means of participant responses of subsections of the BACB code 5.0 
and for uh, miscellaneous category relative to supervisory demographics. And then finally, are there correlations between supervisors reported individual behaviors and certification outcomes? And again, a lot of individual questions and, and statistical models needed to answer those, but first you had to get that out to people. So how did you send your, your survey to individuals? I use the BACB mass email service um, and there's, they have a couple different opportunities for you, for them. So there's different categories and it was a very easy process. So anyone who's looking to get out information um, for research that like I've, I've even used it for my SCABA like promotion for a conference. I, I love using their mass email service. It's very convenient and um, priced really, really well. So it was very affordable even for me as a, as a student to use. Um, and it's important to, to note that, you know, when, when you get those emails from potential researchers, we're, we're asking very important questions. I've personally utilized the service as well. Um, and I really encourage any and all listeners to, to take those emails seriously and give us a, a few minutes of your time to, to answer some of those questions. And I, if, if you'll allow this opportunity, I always plug this when I can, please join your state chapter or renew your membership. So mm -hmm. please join your derivative state chapter and please know that every single executive board member is a volunteer giving service time. Um, and going back to what you just talked about for research when, um, yes. And so I, I like, I conceptualize this. So right now I'm doing some work for um, state licensure in our state and I'm trying to get some survey. I'm trying to get us up to as close to 50% as possible because we're doing important work and we need membership input to guide our behavior, our volunteer board behavior. But I will, going back to your point, um, for anyone listening, consider it a service time. Mm. Consider you taking that survey as a gift of service time and recognize that in order for us to have APBA, ABAI, BACB, there are so many people who never get credited for gifted service time. Like I can't mm. even identify hundreds of people along the way that give an hour or two, whether it's a month. And so you're imagine, like you just said, you're giving five to seven minutes in service to our profession and making it amazing. Um, and, and I think that that's a good way if it helps you know that you're helping someone else by giving that time. So I think that's a beautiful um, way to sort of reframe that use of the time because it is easy to, to delete, right? So, and sometimes we delete them, but um, it's important if you can to maybe filter them. Like I put those sorts of things as I, like going back to Amber Valentina, who was talking about organization. I actually have an inbox for stuff like that, Cody, where nice. I, I put like research service, I actually have that in my Gmail where I filter them. And then I will go back and retrieve them like on a certain day in the week when I have that time and fill them out so that you don't have to actually just ignore it. You can just file it and then go back to it when you have time. And that's how I, that's how I handle that um, from a or organizational time management perspective, because it's easy, depending on the type of job you have to get flooded with emails yeah. and, and not know like what is salient, right? Especially now with all of all things that are marketed in an electronic format. So it's easy like to not attend. And it, it's, it's like, um, I'm sure there's like the behavior analytic word. I'm like escaping, um, uh, it, it's uh, uh yeah well saliency there's another word I'm, I'm grasping at but um the, the idea is like if, if things like it's sort of like it's there's so much of it you're not sure what to attend to right like you're not mm. sure like if I'm getting a survey like constant like you know um like my gym my gym membership wants my survey right my you know like every part of your life is asking for survey uh. feedback you know what I'm saying yeah um and so you kind of de determining like discriminating what really needs what do I really need to give my time to so a long code 
Cody's message, I would say if you get surveys from APBA, ABAI, the BACB, or call for research for behavior analytic, file those somewhere. Those are all important and file them somewhere. And maybe you delete the ones for like Bath and Body Works, right? Or <laughs> or like uh, Planet Fitness, right? Maybe you want to delete those because that's like maybe less critical um, to an extent. But uh, I love that you just mentioned that. And I appreciate you saying that because it's so important. Yeah, I suppose I won't get sponsorship for Bath and Body Works now, but that's okay. Do you think I will? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love the message. I, I love your strategy for keeping those straight. And ultimately, you're helping progress the field forward by, by helping inform us about or people doing the research via surveys, informing them about what it's like to actually practice, right? You're looking at what does supervision actually look like? And you can only find that out one way, and that's talking to people, getting survey feedback. And so the way you set up your survey was incredibly sophisticated and complicated. As we've sort of alluded to, we can't get into every single nuance of that in, in this format. It's, of course, described extremely well in the paper. But let's sort of jump ahead and look at what you ended up seeing in, in, in these results. Yeah, um, definitely. So what, what I'll say, um, and what I'd like to do because of where we are with a, a code change coming, I'd like to like, my, my paper was written under the current standards that will be transitioning out later this year. What I'd like to maybe direct people to are code themes, right? Like, so mm -hmm. instead of calling it 5.02 or 5.01. Um, so if you look at the crosswalk, the supervision code will now be 4.0 in, in January. So let's look at just the code themes in general. Um, what I found where the areas of the code that do really well were um, 5.05 or the communication of written conditions, which is basically the contract, um, 5.04, which is designing effective supervision and training. Okay, so that's basically hinge on like fundamentally BST, right? Training people with evidence-based practices. And then 5.06, so delivering feedback, just the, the theme of delivering feedback. Um, those were like stronger performers as people self-reported on those objective anchors. Mm -hmm. And if you look at maybe why those things were, I, like, cause obviously that's part of what I'm, I'm I have to do on, in my research is just explore those outcomes. And one of the things, so 5.0 or the communication of supervision conditions. So the contract itself, that aspect is really, that's being removed and the, the new code. And really what I saw occur which I think is helpful is that there is now more of a breakdown of more salient features of that, of I think what 5.05 it was trying to capture, which is, you know, terminating conditions, like just different aspects of, I think that are the most critical features that need to happen um, on the outset and need to be really clear. So providing a little bit more objectivity in the new code for those pieces. So the new code has 12 subsections in the supervisory um, section where the current one has seven. Um, so there's a little bit of difference, but I see that there were some things that were kind of teased out a little bit um, that were helpful. Um, so those behaviors that I saw for that, that, that makes sense because they're one-time behaviors, low frequency, right? So the response effort from a supervisor is like one and done, right? Mm -hmm. Like I've got a, and, and the board has all sorts of templates you can right. use, right? It's like really low response effort. BST and feedback. Well, if you look at the eight-hour training requirements, right, that you have to take now, that is a huge component that they, they really focus on in the training is, so that's like an integral part of um, an interaction, right, where I'm modeling 
journaling, talking about what I'm doing. And then I watch you do, you do provide, and then feedback, feedback happens, right? So these are like integral parts of the process. And so that makes sense, even though they may be a little bit more response effortful, they actually just happen naturally. Like it's like, it's going to happen, right? It's like behavioral momentum, it's this sequence will happen at some point. The pieces of the code that were not as highly reported, self-reported on were supervisory competence. And there was outliers on that, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, and then also the other aspects of the code were supervisory volume, that was a big one. And then going into evaluating effects of supervision, um, just for code themes, as general code themes. And when we looked, when I really looked at diving into that, um, the things that stood out most to me were the, the behaviors involved in those are, and I apologize, there's one huge one, supervisory delegation, where that was the number one reported area. So that actually aligned well with what Jim Carr said in his white paper. So there was some sort of alignment there, which is actually nice when that happens, right, where <laughs> you do, you conduct research and it supports what was described. So there was some validation in that, um, but that those things are more effortful. If you break down the behaviors that comprise those sections or those themes, you can see, okay, wow, this is more than just one and done. And this is more than just an integral part of the interaction. This requires me to do a lot of things offsite. So I looked at a reoccurring fundamental theme across these things. These are things that don't involve maybe um, direct interaction with the supervisee that require a lot of offsite preparation and indirect um, time from the supervisor to actually cohesively do these aspects and these behaviors and where there may be little reinforcement um, involved. So if you look at the even BST and the feedback, well, you're with another human being, right? So you're going to get some feedback, uh, like someone's smiling at you or nodding their head. Like there's something there that you may be getting out of the exchange, right? Um, but like some of the other things, if you really tease apart these behaviors, you may not be contacting um, reinforcement that feels good for you, right? That reinforces your behavior of, of engaging in it. Um, high frequency, higher response effort uh, behaviors, mm. if you looked at that categorically. Um, and I don't know if it's, if it's okay if I just dive into um, other aspects of it, but what I think is most helpful that I saw was the things that I believed I hypothesized in my head about where like, oh, um, like there's going to be a lot of uh, demographic variables that are going to impact the self-reported scores. That in fact didn't really come out to be the case, except mm. for one exception, which is people who practice under two years self-reported much lower on supervisory competence, which that makes sense. You shouldn't be competent and you probably aren't, don't know how to engage in those behaviors. And again, that was beautiful to find out because the board had already released that they were going to have a post-certification restriction post one year. And so that was beautiful. Again, again, another beautiful gemstone where the research sort of validated the natural changes that the board is working working towards. I was like, yeah, that's great. Um, the things that I thought were most um, critical to point out were employment variables were hugely important in relation to supervisory volume. So university respondents, someone like such as yourself, they self-reported higher across the board on all of these behaviors, um, whereas practitioners in the field were just a lot lower, right? That mm. was one big piece. And so I had to speculate as to why, and, and that is described, but I, I think fundamentally it goes down to if you're dealing with consumers, their needs are going to come before trainees. Like if, if push comes to shove, um, in the employment setting, if you looked at that, that really employment variables was the number one indicator as to what would impact someone's ability to have time, like scheduled time to do it versus allotted time by the employer. So that mm. was actually one of the, the 
the findings, and that goes back to what LeBlanc and Lucielli had asked. They wanted to know the work exigencies. So that kind of confirmed, yeah, we need to actually do a better job looking at that. And I think the new code talks about supervisory volume. They did a really nice job writing a sentence in that a behavior analyst has a responsibility to not only communicate their bandwidth and volume um, restrictions to their trainee, but also their employer setting, right? Mm -hmm. They actually added that as a nuance, which I thought was amazing because we may not inadvertently realize as an employer, you're placing your BCBA fieldwork supervisors in a ethical conundrum, right? Where they, you've got them doing all these components that they really can't do. Um, and people I know and talking and passing conversations where people keep asking the board to put out some kind of standard for what is a reasonable ratio for, for volume, like the mm. number of trainees, but they, they really cannot do that. There's too many variables at any particular BCBA may contend with, with the, what their job description looks like or what their job looks like. Um, they can't just give a blanket recommendation on that. There's too many possible combinations. Um, what in fact though may be helpful is looking at um, doing sort of um, a time study, I guess is the best way to describe it, where you're looking at um, averages of it takes about this much time to engage in certain behaviors that align with the code, right? Like assessing a supervisor, a supervisor trainee at baseline, developing goals, um, evaluating effects, right? Where we can pinpoint those, those behaviors and say, this takes about this many minutes, right? Giving some averages or some parameters, I think would be a logical next step in relation to helping set some, we can't say like only take 10 trainees, but what we can say is it may take this much time to respond to emails, right, in a week or to do um, an assessment to develop a plan for their um, fieldwork supervision experiences. Um, but ultimately, that was probably the most um, important finding. I mean, like all of the all of the write-up really describes, I think, other aspects of the code. Like in, in the current code, Cody, if you look at it, it, there was a beautiful aspect of it that I think um, in the, the, the new code coming out that maybe um, that I that I appreciated about the current the current code is that it's it's linear. Mm. So you have to be competent. You have to then, if you can competent, then you can actually assess your volume, and then you assess baseline, right? And then you train, evaluate, provide feedback, and then evaluate whether or not what you did worked. So there's like a beautiful symmetry in that relationship. So in the new code, it's not as um, linear, but there's more clarity and 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 what constitutes like the substance of the code to help guide practitioner behavior. Um, but ultimately, I think the findings for me were um, helpful to kind of say, okay, we're not crazy. And you, you like, you know what I mean? Like, basically, the number one thing that that came out of it was like, we, and all the things that need to be done, it really hinged on time. And, and again, going back to your beautiful podcast with Amber Valentino, she talked a lot about this and she gave a lot of good resources on time, but time is critical. And if, it, if you have to be able to actually come down to time management um, to determine if you even have the ability to read literature, become competent, to become a fieldwork supervisor, um, to, to evaluate your competing contingencies and really know, do can I do all of these things? Um, can I... You know what I mean? Like there's so many aspects of of supervision that are beyond our, our discussion today that, you know, that are cataloged to an extent in the in the article. But um, it's actually in talking with Tyra Sellers, I think the best analogy I can give people with is that consider your fieldwork trainee to be like your um, your your consumer caseload. Treat mm -hmm. your trainee like they are your client. 
they need assessment, they need an intervention plan, and they need progress monitoring. Right. And when you treat it like that, then you recognize how serious the relationship is. Yeah, um, I agree. And I hear a lot of supervisors say things like, oh, yeah, it's because we don't have time, which is, of course, one of the variables you're pointing to. I would say you don't have time to not supervise effectively because of what that causes on the back end, which is unprepared or ill-prepared BCBAs entering the field or even beyond that or more immediate, your supervisors are going to be providing less effective services to your consumers, uh, all of which can be remediated by putting in some time up front, being organized and allocating your time appropriately. Exactly. And I think I, I totally agree with you. And I think um, if this is a natural segue uh, to like future research, right? Like what, what, what I came from this, and, and this is what I'm working on now is looking at um, in the field, uh, people don't have time to even figure that out, right? Like how do I even figure out time management for supervision? Because right. what, what's happening is um, our field is so young and people are being hired and they don't know what to ask. They don't even know what it means to be to be put in that position. They just say, yes, they're excited. I got my BCBA <laughs> certificate in the mail and I'm going to make 50 to $60,000 a year. And then, oh, and by the way, you've got to supervise an RBT because an RBT, we got them to take the job because we promised them they would also get their field work supervision and you've got to do it. So there's all these things that a new BCBA may not even know to ask of a potential employer to make sure that they're safeguarding themselves yeah. um, and having the right questions answered before accepting a position. Um, but what that's one of the things in relation to future lines of research. And um, the board actually put out a really nice newsletter in October of last year in regards to giving some additional information on time management and supervisory volume. And I think it boils down to is and I would love to know what you, your general thoughts are, are on this, but being a fieldwork supervisor, I think we have to take a step back and really look at it as that in and of itself is its own competency, right? Like a yeah. specialty. Um, if you look at like uh, medical, the medical model, um, LPC, clinical psych program, social work, if you look at just like an average, a moving average, and I, I did this really beautiful workshop last October and I had this graphic because behavior analysts love visuals, like we love like to see data. So I did a bar graph to show people where we were like as an average versus others in relation to the amount of time prepared before you're released to actually train an apprentice or train someone under you. So in a medical model, it's seven to 14 years, mm. right? Um, um, clinical psych, um, you know, there's, you have to have a PhD first and then like three years and there's different like postdoc requirements in states. Um, and then you have like social work that's got a lot more years involved, three additional, like three years to get through field work, right? Plus some additional requirements. LPCs, you have to be practicing for three years, plus take an LPC supervisor course. You have to have a designation for that. And then you look at our field and it's kind of scary if you look at these other bar graphs and think, oh my gosh, someone could literally be a supervisor like one year and five months after. Like that's, if you think about medicine um, and the, the techniques, if you look at that, it's overwhelming if you look at it graphically. It, it, it's like, how is that possible that you can really teach someone else to do what you do that quickly? I could not agree more. I have, my partner is a clinical psychologist and so, I got my PhD in behavior analysis, same time she's working on her PhD in clinical psychology, and the training requirements for two somewhat comparable degrees or professions are unbelievably different. 
she's just now finishing up her her postdoctoral year of clinical service because not only did they need to get clinical hours throughout their degree, not only did she have to spend a year working as a pre-doc before she got her PhD, she actually then had to work another year postdoc before she can get licensed. And I've been a professor for two years and we like started our degrees at the same time. It's just the amount of time difference and sort of requirements for the two different degrees is, is unbelievable. And I love comparing our field, especially at the master's level to nurses. Yes. I think, you know, with it, with a master's level nurse, we have around the same amount of certain time in school that are, are, is required. We're doing obviously very different work, but in some ways in terms of the needed skill set, somewhat comparable at the master's level. And I look at how rigorous nurse training is compared to honestly right. behavior analytic training. And I'm saying that as a, as a graduate program director, I'm very familiar with, with the standards and, and what is required for something like that. And the other piece is, I'm sorry, you hit on a, a major <laughs> piece of passion for me in, in this topic is I was lucky. My, my bachelor's degree was, was basically in behavior analysis. Most People do not get a bachelor's degree in behavior analysis. They're cramming all of their training into two years, basically, at the master's level, right? A nurse, typically, they're going to have a bachelor's degree in nursing. So they spent four years working on that. And then for a master's degree, I'm not 100% sure how long that takes them, but I'm going to guess around two years. So they've got, let's say, six years total training to do their job. A lot of behavior analysts, undergrad is in psychology, maybe special education, which of course is applicable and related, but it's not the same. Then you're cramming all that information in two years. So what would be equivalent to six years of training for pretty much every other profession we're nailing in two years. And that's why I tell my students, guys, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough two years. I'm not going to lie. I'm cramming six years of information in two years. What it would be equivalent to any other profession. It's funny. Um, Vince Carbone talked about, um, like, he has an interesting model of how he promotes people up to be, like, supervisors. H- have, have you seen his work? Where, like, yeah, the work New he's England Center. For- yeah, yeah, exactly. So he has a very clear process that I think aligns with more of, um, I think, a reasonable uh, progression, right, where it's, like, a very clear, slow, steady pathway where there's checks and points. And I, and I think um, it's exciting. Yeah. So yes, I love that you actually have the similar sort of um, perspective in relation, like, and I love that you also have the analogy of your background was in your undergrad. Mine was in psych and you're right. Like I had to, I had an opposite experience where I crammed in a lot of behavior analytic courses quickly. Um, and you can kind of see that too, like, and it kind of shows up like a- afterwards, after you become certified, you can kind of see there are people where I'm like, you don't know what it, and, and I'll just say this, I'm not going to name names, but I'm like, you don't know what um, schedules of reinforcement are. Like, you actually don't know how to apply them real. And that's a little scary to me. And I re- I had to ask myself, did you know what schedules of reinforcement were? But when you come from a strong behavior analytic background, we're able to do research and see it in an experimental setting. Um, and then there's a natural progression. And I think that leads into like, naturally kind of, uh, you know, our conversation here, if I were to look at other lines of research, here's what, here's my vision. And I think you'll, you'll be excited to, at this idea. I envision a world where we can have, like, get to a medical model eventually, right? Where you have a sub, you do, like, everyone does the standard something, and then you subspecialize the, the 
basics of the science into an area of passion for you. I think about teacher training too, like how teachers get stuck randomly in a classroom that they are, they don't really have passion for, but they just get assigned with whatever. And they end up like in a mild classroom or like severe disability rooms, but they did all their work in a crosscat room, but, and they never, they didn't get the, the feedback they needed in the setting they were going to work. Mm-hmm. And you can see the symptoms occur with burnout, um, turnover. Um, so it's important to align, like find someone where like, where, you know, you're passionate about. Um, so in a vision I have, I would love to see how can we build out a sustainable model um, across, you know, the next, let's say 10, 15 years of where we set up systems where we have more standardization process where um, like our university, our universities and partnering organizations can work together with school districts, with hospitals, with different settings, right, where we build these relationships and say, hey, let us come in and use our science. And we can do good stuff for you. Can we can we have our fieldwork supervision student here in the setting? Because right now we're just sort of in um, a special education like realm, like we're heavy there. But we can do so much more. And I envision this, and then letting people have rotations, right, where mm-hmm. you go and do something here. That's what I see, sort of like a mini version of a medical model. And then that's how I see like we build out and sneak people into these systems, like Cody. That's like my my sneak attack, like. It's coming, everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's TBD. It's coming. But that's actually that's what I'm interested in. So I'm interested in looking at like the time management as like how we can evaluate how much time it takes to give people an idea of time so they can look at their own schedules and do time studies, but giving them a framework about it takes about this much time and a month or week to manage a student or a trainee. And then I'm looking at how can we create these systems that allow for um, like as we get towards a steady state that allow for us to really build out the science and to all populations that would benefit, including like large systems issues to individual consumers. Um, Tim Courtney, and I think Amber did mention this as well, the little star model where they did a really big contribution there. Um, I think Vince Lamarca was on that, Tim Courtney, uh, yeah, his clinic, but they showed the apprenticeship model. And I love, I love the direction he was trying to push us to show us like how you can make it financially viable within an organization to rotate um, because there's competing contingencies right now. And most people are just getting their fieldwork supervision done um, based on whatever caseloads available to you. And it may or may not align well with what you need on the task list. Like I've got people who never had verbal behavior training and I'm like show me how to set up a manned right like like how do you, how would you use like naturalistic interventions or environmental arrangement to get a manned a free operant man to occur they don't they don't even know what that means um right. and so when you look at the task list oh, okay here's another one an FBA and this is the big soapbox of mine which I'll, I'll I'll I won't stay on this too long every single person should run a real FBA before you are certified if we did a survey, an anonymous survey, Cody, where we got people to actually respond um, to our survey, I'm going to guess it's a lot scarier than you realize how many people just did fake FBAs on themselves and submitted it for their FBA program. I, I can <laughs> concur with that in my, not in my personal experience. I, I had a great training experience when I was in school, but with the, with the BCBAs that I interact with, I completely support that statement that I think most people honestly haven't the slightest clue as to really what a functional behavior assessment is. Yeah. And so like, if you're listening to this and you're a supervisor or you want to be a supervisor, you need to ask yourself, do I, like, can you do, first of all, do you, have you even done these skills? And if the answer is you can't run verbal behavior, uh, you've never done an FBA, should you really be training someone else? I go back to Tyra's graphic, right? That zombie graphic. Should you train someone else? Because that's not our science. All right. 
that is not our science. And so um, that those are the things, like, there's a lot, and there's a lot I could talk about because I'm like, and I'm sure you can tell like, I'm like literally like so excited about this. Um, but that's that's really anyone who's interested in future lines of research. I think it's like, how can we start um, building relationships with other stakeholder systems so we're, we can, like, we can do it. Like, it's like, and you probably know this because you're interviewing people, we can move systems, but it starts with building relationships. You mm -hmm. have to connect and be likable, right? People need to just like you. You don't need to talk about our science, right? Like with licensure for our state, I'm having to do a lot of PR stuff, right? And I realize I have to just be a lay person, right? Like I just have to bring donuts and coffee, <laughs> right? Like it's getting back to the basics and not even talking about behavior analysis, like as a, as a thing, just, oh, you seem like a nice person. And yeah, I'll hang out with you and, and talk for a minute. Um, but that, it really goes back to that, right? Like, how do we actually create connections and collaboration? Because I think through collaboration, that's where we start moving these these systems issues, right? Where in fieldwork supervision, in my humble opinion, Cody, is the most important part of a supervisor's potential relationship, because that is the point of entry. Um, and I am, I have a little bit of, I have hope and, and the opportunity for a great future for our science. I also have, um, uh, reasonable concerns right now too, right? Like, like right now, the things that are happening and it's like a delayed ripple effect can be positive or negative. And I want our science to be for everyone, right? And so like, I, I see now more than ever that we need to actually be very thoughtful about fieldwork supervision. It, it's so critical. So I would ask anyone listening, please ask yourself, if you're not sure, if you can't actually describe the code themes, like if you don't know what the supervisor code themes are fluently, you shouldn't be supervising anyone. Absolutely. The answer is no, because you're right. not competent to even know what the code says. Um, and that should be an immediate red flag that you're probably not ready. Um, but those are those are my main sort of takeaways for future lines of research. And that is that is what I'm currently working on right now is um, I've I've dedicated now half of my work week is to putting out putting together uh, easy to, di to digest resources for practitioners right now. Um, that are easy because no one has time, right? Going back to the idea of time, the concept, it needs to be something that can help immediately um, solve some problems that people need literally, Cody, to be like, how can I be better right now, right? right. And so I'm going to start picking the lowest hanging fruit and it's everything is shaping, right? Just do something and let me start shaping it. Like, so right, let's start right. shaping our repertoires ahead of a steady and enforceable steady state. Let's start doing a little bit better now. And that would be the message that I hope my research um, inspires is for anyone who wants to pick it up or continue exploring it. Um, anything you do right now is helpful, like any lines of research and diving into these pieces, anything for time management um, and evaluating how people can work on, um, on those aspects and, and develop, developing fieldwork supervision as a competency and starting to acknowledge it as its own thing. Um, I think that that is very, very helpful. So um, one little shout out I wanted to give, which I think is, is um, is helpful is building and sustaining meaningful and effective relationships as a supervisor and mentor by LeBlanc Sellers and uh, a lot, a I mean, I apologize. I, I believe I'm not pronouncing that um, correctly, but um, this, this is just came out in last uh, fall and this, and I'm digesting this. And, and I think this is part of what I would say is if you're going to be a fieldwork supervisor, um, it's your responsibility to consume literature that is coming out and be in touch with 
if that's what you consider an area you do, like fieldwork supervision as a skill set, you need to be reading the literature. Um, and this book is amazing. They did a beautiful job. Um, this is like a labor of love. You can tell when you read something, you're like, they put a lot of, there's a lot of resources and references. You can tell they put a lot of time into this. And this is a gemstone. It's a unicorn. Um, I encourage everyone to grab that. Um, if you're a fieldwork supervisor, you need to have this and you need to be reading it. Um, and in the interim, like that, that's really probably, those are the most important things I would say in relation to um, just in general, the research, the work I've done, and I'm, I'm continuing to put stuff out right now and working on, um, because going back to that theme of time, 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 like it's just this reoccurring theme of nobody has time to stop and gain competency right now, right? And so right now I recognize kind of like going that research to practice gap. What is What do practitioners need? They need something easy to digest that can help them be better right now. And that is where I'm like plugging right now. So I'm looking at time studies, like work to do time studies, really breaking apart the, the code and looking at how much time does it take to actually do these things? So people mm -hmm. can go back to that concept of if I treat this like an actual client and consumer like how many hours like we know like you need at least 6.5 hours um can be the max someone can claim in a month right um so like going back to things we know and then taking all the things that are unknown like emails phone calls drive time developing resources developing a plan progress monitoring so i'm interested in doing time studies and that's the work i'm doing right now behind the scenes through some collaboration um to get that get those resources out but um that's that's sort of where you know, I'm optimistic, Cody. I'm optimistic, and I'm gonna. I choose to to see like there's hope and opportunity um, for our science, and and like I've, I love I've, it. Keep working, keep moving <laughs> forward. Every day is a new day to to do something awesome with our fields. I'm very excited, um, and thank you for this opportunity. It's been delightful to to talk with you and have this conversation. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I'll tell you, my heart is singing. I, I really love this conversation. I think it's so important. Just the basic concept that supervisors need to be really more intentional. I get a lot of emails from people being a graduate program director who are interested in providing supervision for our program. And I you know, tend to ask some very basic questions about what is the setup? What would the experience be? And more often than not, people had no idea like oh I like I don't know what the experience would be it's like then what exactly are you seeking to do if, if you don't have a, a plan for the experiences and the structure that you're going to use to train people because it's it's training what exactly is the motivation there to do right. something like that yeah right exactly ask yourself why why am I doing this like it's like not everyone's a teacher right like not like it's like it's like and that's what fieldwork supervisor is like you're a teacher right yeah. like and if you weren't you have to think about it like that and not everyone wants to be a teacher and that's okay some people want to do research or they want a specific niche and that's all awesome so you have to ask yourself those questions and, and I love that's such a good point you just made and um it's it's um it's exciting time to be in our field I, I'm I'm so um I think like I said now is our time like we're gonna do good stuff, Cody. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, particularly with people like you being passionate and taking on important topics. I think that I'll be so interested to see what you find with some of the research on time. I had a friend of mine recently tell me about a job that they were offered and they were asked to be a clinical director or something like that, who was going to launch sort of research at a center. They wanted them to also do some supervision of, you know, 
I don't know, three to six supervisees and then have a caseload of, yeah, and you're shaking your head. Exactly my point. And my friend said, wow, I think this is a great opportunity. And I said, how many hours a week is that job? Because I mean, just do the simple math there. It, when you start talking about how many hours is it going to take you just to provide supervision services for a single client, right? And then how many hours does it take to provide supervision training for, for people seeking their BCBA credential? And how many hours does it take to push a research project or a single research project through? Those things add up and there's not a lot of re resources to help people understand what, who don't have the experience understand really what this all entails and how many hours it really takes. Right. And then like, you only know after you go through it and you're like, oh, like, and then you're like, uh, you're like, I'm not sleeping at night. And you're like, I hate my life, my quality. <laughs> you're like, I, and I'm, I'm about to get, you know, divorced or like, you know what I mean? Where you're yeah. like, your, your quality of life goes down and you realize because my professional bandwidth is way more than I, I really, yeah. And then you learn through those contingencies and it would be nice if someone just said, Hey, here, don't burn out. We want you to stay in the field. Yeah. Right? Don't quit this job. And I think it's such an important note you just made. Like employers should care about this because turnover is also a potential side effect, right? When mm -hmm. you have people who are like way over and they're like, I just, I'm not even sleeping at night. Look at teachers. Cody, teachers have to have summer break and spring break and Christmas break. You know what? So they don't kill a kid because because they're so burned out by the time they get to you know summer, they have to only they can only work that many days without going crazy because yeah. they, they need they need to catch up on sleep. <laughs> um, God bless our school, our public school teachers. Good at all teachers, all teachers. God bless all of them. Um, but they, seriously, think about think about the way systems are designed. Like. 40 hours is good, right? That's, that's a good number. And if you're pushing people past that, you, you need to be reinforcing them heavily yeah. for it, right? So you're competing um, with some aspect there. And if you're not, don't be surprised if they go seek reinforcement somewhere else, right? And, yeah. and, and it always stinks when we lose a behavior analyst, right? Like, at, at, like we have a gemstone who leaves, like teachers. I hate when I see teachers leave after two years because they're just burned out right. that, because the structures aren't in place to help them manage and organize efficiently. Um, it's the same thing with what you just described. Like, I, I hate to lose a behavior analyst in our field um, for reasons like you just described, right? Where we can, you know, and I think employers, I think we need to care. And I think we need to help employers care about these things. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for, for all the information that you've provided. I love this paper. I'll tell you, uh, I'll, I'll declare this now. This is going to be a mandatory read for all students in my supervision course that I teach. Yes! So Yay! I think it's that important. I think there's so much relevant, useful information for anyone considering training within this, this paper. And you added so much rich context as well in this interview. So I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to, and when anyone who's interested in, in um, future lines of research, please contact me. Um, I, I can be found at, well, greenspacebehavior.com um, or you can you just Google my name. You'll find me. <laughs> there's, there's very few people with my combination of letters names on the internet. So you'll find me. <laughs> so. And we'll link to all that in the show notes Great. as well. So again, Thank thanks you. for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Before you take off, please remember to like us and subscribe on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes 
and suggest recent bat papers you think we should review on this show. The links are in the show notes. Finally, thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the Journal of Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervias and Jesse Parent, and my production assistant for this episode, Jackie Wilson. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>